Alan Whitaker emailed me this week and said, So, after last Sunday's message, are you going to offer any more explanation about the doctrine of salvation? And I got to thinking, it's like, well, maybe I should. Um, now, last Sunday's sermon, I believe I gave the sense of what the text said. But last Sunday's sermon brought attention. And many times when we read Jesus' words, it does bring attention. And what we are used to hearing is developed a lot more in the epistles. Um, And so I want to make sure whenever I deal with Jesus' words that I give them the fair sense because we need the tension that Jesus' words bring, whether for the seeker who who needs salvation or whether for the sower who is sowing the truth of salvation, there is truth for both in Jesus' words. However, just in case there is a need for clarification, I thought I would give you an overview, and I called it Taking a Peek at Our Mansion. I used the illustration last week when we talk about studying our salvation that it's like we have this mansion available to us and we could spend our whole life all of our lives just looking into every room of those of this mansion and still not fully explore the mansion and it's exciting it's amazing it's beautiful it's interesting And that is the way our salvation is. And so I thought that that's what I would title this sermon, Taking a Peek at Our Mansion, A Brief Study on the Doctrine of Salvation. Now, there's a lot here today, and so I'm going to move fairly fast. If for some reason um, I have to just breeze by a slide and you wanted some more information, um, this is right off of my doctrinal statement with some adjustments here and there because it is a sermon. And so if you have any questions or you want more information or you weren't able to copy a reference down, um, email Jeanette and I will give her a copy of this page of my doctrinal statement and you can study it some more because it's it's good stuff, folks. Not because it's my doctrinal statement, because it's God's word. So as we consider the doctrine of salvation, the heart of any child of God who looks at the mechanics of soteriology, that is the fancy doctrinal term for the doctrine of salvation, soteriology should swell with gratitude, humility, and praise. For then this truth, we see how a sinful, I can add broken, human being can have standing an audience, a conversation, a relationship with the everlasting God. It is through no merit of his or her own, but only faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not only does a man have a standing with God, but he has the riches of Christ. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for these wonderful truths. Spirit of God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart today, warm our hearts, bring us joy, bring us awe, 
where needed, may it be conviction. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And it's because of you, Jesus, we have this salvation. Amen. Okay, so aspects of salvation, which we're going to spend most of our time today. The salvation of man is for the glory of God. A lot of people reduce salvation to a fire insurance policy. Salvation in their mind is just to get out of hell. Salvation does accomplish that, but it is much, much more. God's salvation is a gift, and it is for all. So looking at this concept or this idea of God's glory and salvation, I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I have some dot, dot, dots in there because I have to skip over some of it for the sake of time. Blessed or praise to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. By the way, those who are going to camp this week, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is where we're going to be all week. So you're going to be hearing this again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, so that we who were in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. By the way, what's glory? Glory is that that stuff of celebration, that awesomeness. When the guy gets the touchdown and the crowd is going crazy, there's glory, it's praise, it's awesomeness, it's value. And everybody's valuing it at once with their praise. And so when we are placed in Christ in our salvation, it is that awesome thing that everyone wants to shout praise because they're so excited because it's so awesome. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Spirit, Holy Spirit, to the praise of His glory. Have you ever thought of your salvation as something that people go crazy excited about and shout praise and adoration because of your salvation? When we talk about glory and God's glory and our salvation being that way, that's what it is. It is just celebration. It's crazy joy. It's like tearful adoration. It's excitement. That is God's glory and salvation. So aspects of salvation, different um, scholars divided up different ways. This is generally the classic categories um, that you're going to see as you study this. 
So we're going to breeze through these because if I were to really dig in, we'd be here until this evening. First of all, election. Election. Election is a great mystery. But what you need to understand is that God is not helpless when it comes to people's salvation. God does exercise a choosing power that is unfathomable. It's not something we can understand. But in this passage of Ephesians chapter 1, which we're going to go back to in a second, it is a matter of comfort. It is a matter of comfort. The Bible teaches that God's love extends to the whole world. It also teaches that God's, of God's choosing of us to salvation. Again, how those reconcile, we don't know. But the Bible clearly teaches both. There are many Christians who need to spend time in Ephesians chapter 1, as well as other passages finding encouragement in the fact that God has personally chose them. He knows their name. He knows your name. He cares for you. And he has brought you to salvation. So I said over and over again in the Garden of Eden, it was Adam and Eve that ran away from God and God pursued them. What would have happened if God had not pursued Adam and Eve? They would have remained under condemnation. But God pursued them. Now this matter of election does not hamper evangelistic zeal. The desire to give the good news of Jesus Christ. We can readily say we do not know how this mystery works, but we know that God is saving people and we have a job to get out there and to share the good news, knowing that God will save people. You can have confidence in that. You don't put your confidence in your awesome ability as uh, I think as First Corinthians talks about in the first few chapters, the foolishness of the cross, the truth about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is, is foolishness to the world, but it's this foolishness and the preaching of it and the sharing of it that God energizes and through the Spirit brings people to salvation. It's exciting. It's awesome. It's amazing. That wasn't in my notes, but I had to share it. This is going to be hard to keep it short. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, talking about God's choosing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or praise be to Him who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. The Father chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. This happened before the world even came into being. Your name was on God's mind. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. There's some other references, and I'm going to just keep on going, folks. If you want them, we'll have to get. You have to email, and uh, we'll get those to you. God desires all men to be saved. Again, there's some other references here. We're not going to look at them this morning. But the Bible does teach God's choosing, but it also teaches God's desire for the human race, all of them, to be saved. 
So that was election. Next is calling. This is an important part of our salvation as well. Calling. God calls people to salvation. Calling is a technical term in our New Testaments dealing with our salvation. In the Garden of Eden, again, God called out to Adam and Eve and he pursued them. And so there is a calling, a pursuit of people to salvation. There is what many people would call a general call. When Jesus was on earth, he called out to people and says, come to me. Matthew chapter 11 Verse 28, Jesus called out. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden under a lot of a load and the cares of this life, feeling like you have no hope or no purpose for life. And he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you take my burden upon you and learn from me jesus says for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls you want rest in this life rest comes through jesus's yoke rest comes through the salvation of your soul in jesus And he goes on, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You feel thirsty in this life? You feel like you don't have anything you want in this life? You feel like nothing is good for you in this life. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you something to drink that will satisfy your soul. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul, as he writes his letter, says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Some other references dealing with calling, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, and then Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. So election, calling, and then conversion. Conversion. Man, people, must willingly turn to God. You can use with this word conversion the idea of confess and repent. There's nuances with each of those three words, but they're all generally used here. This idea of convert, to turn away, to repent, to turn away from your sin and to turn to God and to believe in Him. There are many people who have said they've prayed the prayer, but they show no evidence, no results of conversion or turning of repentance. There are many shallow and fake conversions out there. 
And here is an example. Paul is celebrating with the people as he writes his letter, to, first letter to the Thessalonians and the people at Thessalonica. And he's celebrating because there was a visible change in their life. And everybody who saw them recognized that there was a visible conversion, a visible turning. For the people around the, uh, the town of Thessalonica would say concerning the people at Thessalonica, the kind reception that Paul and his company had when he was there at Thessalonica and how these people turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Many people, when they teach on salvation, they put emphasis on if you just pray this prayer, if you just pray this prayer, but salvation is a complete picture of turning and serving, turning and following. It's not that you earn your salvation through what you do after your prayer. It's that it's an evidence that you have made God your Lord and you've turned away from anything else. That he is your Lord and your Savior and you live for him and you serve him now. You don't serve any other God, not even yourself. That is conversion. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, if you offer up words of belief that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, folks, technically, this is not teaching you have to pray a prayer. It is a testimony of words of belief. But there's nothing wrong with praying a prayer. That's an absolutely wonderful way. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Election, calling, conversion, regeneration. People are made alive by God, by grace through faith in their salvation. So, yes, you were born as a baby into this world. You were crying and squirming and making all those wonderful noises. Your parents loved it until you screamed at two in the morning. Then only the mom loved you and the dad may not have. Just kidding. So you have physical life, my friends. But you were born spiritually stillborn. Dead. You were born spiritually dead. No life in you, no cries, no spiritual life in you. You were born outside of God's family. And therefore, as John chapter 3 teaches, you were born where the wrath of God is hanging over you, ready to burst in eternal condemnation. So those who have not come to Jesus in salvation, God's wrath hangs over you. And if you go into eternity without Believing in Jesus, that wrath will burst upon you, fall upon you for all of eternity. 
See, that sounds terrible. It is. And that's why Jesus' death on the cross was terrible. Because God's wrath burst on Jesus for every single person alive. God is angry at sin. He cannot tolerate it. So, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, first six verses, looks like I skipped... Oh, I see, that's the chapter. And you who were dead in trespasses and sin. So, Paul is writing to the people at Ephesus who have believed in Jesus. And he's saying what, you, what they were like. And he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. So those who have not believed in Jesus for salvation, they follow Satan. That's what it's saying here. The spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. By the way, disobedience is a demonstration that you are not a follower of God. doesn't mean that Christians never disobey. But if your life is filled with a disobedient attitude, and that is your disposition most of the time, that is a demonstration that you are not a Christian, that you are not a child of God. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The flesh is that part of us that loves sin. It's this desire or passion about doing what we want to do no matter what God wants us to do. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. There's that idea of wrath. God's wrath hangs over people who are not true Christians And they will experience God's wrath in eternity. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, nothing good about us, made us alive together with Christ. How did that happen? By grace, God's grace, His his powerful, transforming, gift-giving grace, you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say that grace is availed by our faith. We receive that transforming grace that makes us spiritually alive by our faith in Jesus Christ, by Conversion by repenting, by believing, and then we are regenerated. John chapter 3 is a classic New Testament passage on regeneration. And then Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. We think of John 3.16, but John chapter 3 is jam-packed with truth about our salvation. Starting with the first 11 or 12 or so verses on the spirit regenerating, making alive. Election, calling, conversion, regeneration. Next, union with Christ. People who have been converted 
and therefore regenerated. The next thing that happens is that we are brought into a vital, a life-giving, a bonding with Jesus Christ. A union. Something spiritual and supernatural happens to where we are bonded to Jesus Christ. Brought together with him to be never separated from him again. What happened at the Garden of Eden? People were separated from God. And God's plan of redemption was to bring people together with him so they can be with him and united with him in a relationship. And that is what God was doing through his plan of salvation, his plan of redemption. He's bringing us together to a union, a uniting, a a bonding together. And we experience that at the moment of salvation. We're united with Christ, but we will be with him in eternity, united in person together in our resurrection bodies forever. So we experience a partial uniting right now and a full uniting and eternity to bring us back to what the Garden of Eden was like, only much better in the new creation. Romans chapter 6 is a wonderful passage talking about this union, this bonding with Christ. We're going to look at all 14 verses because they are so important. I refer to them so often in sermons, and I very rarely have gone through these verses and read them, so I want to do that. We're jumping right into Paul's argument um, in chapter 5 of Romans. He talks about um, our justification and all what that means and how it happened. And since we've been justified in Christ, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. That is ridiculous. It makes no sense. It is very intense in the original language here. He's saying, that's stupid, folks. Basically, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How did we die to sin? Through our union with Christ, our bonding with him. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, and here's the image of uniting us to Christ, is using the idea of baptism, which is spiritual baptism, Water baptism just gets us wet, but it is illustrating what happens spiritually in our salvation. A lot of things when you come to Christ and believe in him, a lot of things happen at once. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It goes on here, it uses this word united, for if we have been united with him, we're united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we learn here that before we become a Christian, before we are saved, before we are born again, we were a slave to sin. If you're not truly a child of God, you are a slave to sin 
and you are following the devil. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ conquered death. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, since you're united with Christ, what does that mean for you? You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what's the conclusion? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your body, your being to sin as instruments for unrighteousness or sinful living. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. What an amazing transition. From death to life. That is unfathomable, folks. But it is something we need to consider. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or any canyon, and you try to think, oh, yeah, maybe I could hike down to the bottom of the canyon and hike up to the other side, you know, in just a few hours. No. It might take you days. It might take your life. It is something that is beyond your ability here. It is something that God can only do to take you from that death and bring you over that chasm to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Other references on your union with Christ? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. John 15, 1 through 11. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Aspects of salvation here, election, calling, conversion, regeneration, and union with Christ, and then justification. So justification, um, I think this is what Awana uses, just as if I had never sinned. Justification means a whole lot more than that, but that is a great way of just bringing it home to you. That you, and you know that you have sinned, you know you have done wrong, and some of you bear the weight of some, some what we would call big sins. Sin is a sin, but you f- feel the weight of your sin. And when you are in Jesus Christ by your salvation, God looks at you as if you've never committed any sin because he sees Jesus' righteousness instead of your own. And we do not have time to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 30, but write it down and read it at home. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Another passage on justification is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So, justification. Next is adoption. Adoption. People, when they become a Christian, 
They are adopted into the family of God. And then therefore, because you are in God's family, you get the privileges that God's family gets. This is a huge blessing and we experience some of those privileges now in this life and we fully experience all the privileges of our eternal inheritance in the new creation. So we get some now, we get some later. And this is the best inheritance you ever get. Almost um, 10 years ago now, I got a little bit of inheritance from my grandpa when he died and went to heaven. And that was good. But it's going to be nothing compared to what I'm going to get in the new creation when I am with all of you who are children of God with Jesus Christ in his new creation for all of eternity. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, In love the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Election, calling, conversion, regeneration, union with Christ, justification, adoption, and then sanctification. The chief goal of salvation is to sanctify, purify, set apart. And at conversion we receive what is called positional sanctification. Remember I said a whole lot of things happen at that moment of conversion. They do happen in this order, but one of the things that happens is positional sanctification. And it it relates to this idea of justification. At that moment, we are completely made holy, perfect, pure, set apart from any sin and unto God. So that's our new position. But as you know, if you're a Christian, you still got sin to deal with. Sin's not your master. Sin doesn't rule you, but it's still a struggle and it's not fully banished until you leave this life. And so you struggle with progressive sanctification. You have positional sanctification at the moment of salvation and you're growing into that new position all throughout your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you do have the power If you are obedient in your walk, in your life, and how you follow Christ, you have the power to produce the virtue, the godly living that we all want. I'm just going to give you these references. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 18. And then Romans chapter 6, we already looked at part of it. You can look at the whole chapter. Election, calling, conversion, regeneration, union with Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification. Now let's look at security. God eternally secures a believer with his power. 
For those who have truly come to Christ, the New Testament teaches that you are eternally secure. You are not to live live your life in fear that all this good that has come to you in your salvation is going to poof, be gone. Because of some mistake. God, Romans chapter 8 teaches us this, God does not want us to have the spirit of fear. I don't want my children, I can be grumpy sometimes and they can see that and they can stay away from me because of that. But on the whole, I do not want my children to be afraid to come to me. Because they're afraid that our relationship is off because of something they have done. In Romans chapter 8, he teaches that very clearly, that, that God does not want his children to have the spirit of fear. He wants his children to have the, the attitude as they, as they think of God, of, of you're my dad, you're my father, I come to you with anything I need, no matter what it is. That is what God wants. And that is the security that comes along with our salvation, is that we do not have to fear because of our weakness, because of our struggle, our failure, our sin, to come to God as our Father. We don't have to worry that, oh, I'm going to do something, and oh, the relationship's off. It's not what the New Testament teaches. <clears throat> Some passages are John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. <clears throat> and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. And then 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Okay, the last aspect of salvation. Glorification. God's program of progressive sanctification for His people will be complete when we are glorified, when we are transformed, put into our eternal Bodies, our resurrected bodies with God in the new creation. And last week, as I opened up the sermon, I gave a little bit of detail on what that new creation will be like to help you visualize it's more than just floating through the clouds, folks. It is a beautiful, wonderful, earth like existence. All the joys and thrills of this life, but much better and without a threat. Of corruption. All the relationship struggles of this life gone. All the beauty and wonder of the good relationships we have in this life there then, but better and forever. References for glorification Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. And one of the interesting things is it's not just us as uh, God's people who experience glorification. But also God's creation will be freed from the curse. It personifies creation here in Romans chapter 8. Groaning under the curse and looking for that day of redemption. And then Romans, or excuse me, Revelation chapters 20 through 22. So there they are folks. And different uh, ones, different scholars are going to give slightly different headings, but it's generally this, the accepted headings for the aspects of salvation. I just want to say a note on 
God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility do stand in tension to one another in our finite minds. And how these two truths can be reconciled is the mystery. We must honor both sides of this tension. We must take our cue from the Bible by appealing to man's personal responsibility for matters of salvation and sanctification. As stated above or previously, progressive personal growth is an essential part of the Christian life. The scriptures are full of commands for believers to separate from sin. Encourage you to take a few minutes and respond to the Lord. There, this happens sadly all the time. Our, our, our human hearts are desperately sick apart from Jesus. There are people who hear the truth. They hear the good news. They hear the gospel. They hear that they were born into sin. They hear that without Jesus, that they will bear God's wrath for all of eternity. And they don't take it seriously. What I have confidence in, folks, is that God is convicting people by the Holy Spirit of their sin. So let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit showing you that you need Jesus? Maybe you've been in church all your life and everybody thinks you're a Christian, but you know that you're not. The Holy Spirit is showing you that you need Jesus. Don't harden your heart. Come to Jesus today. It's the thing about it. The Holy Spirit can touch you in your heart. You may be able to get out from under my words, but the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart. He's inviting you to come. Will you believe? Will you say, yes, Lord? Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.